to The Straight and Marrow, a show that discusses all things allogeneic bone marrow transplant, from pre-transplant considerations to survivorship, using experiences of healthcare providers, patients and carers with current evidence to keep it straight. We are Yvonne, Ming and Alex, nurse consultants and nurse practitioners who are here to keep discussions on the straight and marrow. Welcome to today's episode of The Straight and Marrow. We're talking to Dr. Michelle Young about infections in allograft. Hey, Michelle. Hey. So <laughs> lovely to be here. Can you help me introduce you? I don't, I don't know how to even get across all of the roles you have. No problem. So I'm an infectious diseases specialist and I've been working in the area of uh, bone marrow transplantation um, with you guys for more than 10 years. I also do, am a postdoc researcher and I work a lot with viral infections in the post-transplant period. Mm, that's right. CMV, we'll talk about that later. Yay. <laughs> I was hoping today we could start and then just stem questions from there with a brief overview of the different parts of the immune system and how they impact infection risk. Yes, so the there are several arms of the immune system. Probably the one of the most recognised is the neutrophils and they are a type of white um, blood cell which are used to fight against infections, in particular bacterial infections. Patients are often educated about their neutrophils going down oh, yes. and being at risk of infections. And this happens um, very commonly in the early post-transplant period, in which case um, bacterial infections are your most sort of at-risk mm. infection in that time frame. But there are also other types of the immune system and white cell count, so other fighting cells such as lymphocytes. And these are um, important cells against infections, particularly viral infections. And this um, may come into play more for in the first 100 days, I would say, mm -hmm. but sometimes down the track, particularly if you get graft-versus-host disease. So the attention and emphasis on the neutrophil is warranted. Correct, yes. So bacterial infections before the days of antibiotics can kill you. Without these fighting cells, um, you're left in a very vulnerable position, particularly if you also have um, things such as Hickman lines and Hickman line infections, um, your gut, gut infections. So this is a very vulnerable period. So as soon as you have fevers and low neutrophils, puts you at risk of infections and we need to act quickly. We think about what type of bacteria you might have had, what you might have had in the past, where that infection may have come from, and we try and pick um, the most ideal antibacterial for you. So antibiotics treat bacterial infections. Do Can we treat viral infections with antibiotics? What a great question. No, it's very it's very different pathogen or, or bacterial versus viruses. So coming up to a transplant, we think about this a lot and we put people on what's called prophylaxis or preventative um, medications mm. against viruses, the most common one being um, CMV or HSV or EBV. So the antibacterials won't cover viral infections 
and the antivirals won't cover the bacterial infections. It seems weird because you kind of think of them as being the same when you go to the GP and you get an antibiotic for your viral chest illness, but actually Correct. it's quite different. And, and the difference is because these infections don't affect a normal host or a normal healthy person as they would someone undergoing chemotherapy or having a transplant. So a lot of these are very common infections which don't cause much problems, mm. but except if you're undergoing a transplant, in which case they can be fatal um, and we want to prevent that. How, how common is this? Very common. So the rates of having a bacterial or, or a fever in the, po- in the post-transplant period is in the order of 90%. So it is very common. Pretty much a guarantee. Pretty much. <laughs> um, but, it, but with current um, practices, nicely treated and preventable. And then we talk about viruses and I, I love CMV. Um, so we're, we're talking about two thirds of people um, may undergo CMV reactivation. CMV reactivation seems really scary when you try and describe this to people. How do you describe it to patients? So I like to say that CMV is very common, first of all. Uh, it's a infection that we commonly get in our early adulthood or childhood, which doesn't cause any problem, except if you're about to undergo a transplantation. And in that case, we know that it can cause serious illnesses, such as uh, pneumonia or infection of your gut. Um, But we have practices in place and monitoring in place and early targeted treatment. So that's part of all the blood work that gets taken. Mm. One of those bloods is to uh, monitor for viral infections. If you have a little bit of CMV in the blood... Like, do we immediately plan an ICU bed? What happens? No, it's not that. <laughs> it's not that serious. So with current ways of diagnosis, we can pick this up very early. Mm. And most of the time people are asymptomatic. You wouldn't, you wouldn't feel a thing. So this is something your transplant physicians and myself and other ID physicians, we monitor it. And when it gets to a certain level or if you are experiencing symptoms which might be consistent with that viral infection, we are very quick to put you on an appropriate antiviral. One question uh, that I get a lot is, if I have CMV reactivation as a transplant patient, can I give this to my family member, my pregnant sister-in-law? Is, is it transmissible like that? What a great question. So, no, in that regard, you're the vulnerable person in this story. So, in fact, this CMV has reactivated from your previous um, exposure to CMV and because of the transplant and chemotherapies you're having, it's reactivated from within your own body. Mm. So others around you who have, a say, a normal immune system will not be affected, but at the same time you might are vulnerable to other viral infections that may come into the household. I think that that question's actually relevant across the spectrum of antibi- uh, infections Sorry, as well, because patients will often ask while while they're an inpatient, you know, I'm neutropenic and I have a fever and I've grown this infection. How have I caught this? Absolutely right, Vaughn. So the way I explain it is you are the one who's most vulnerable in this story. And these infections most of the time have come from within your own body. And you've lost that layer of protection from your neutrophils, your lymphocytes, your own immune system and that's where the the bugs can 
that can come out and cause problems. So we, we know this, we try and predict who's at most risk, at what period and what effective antivirals or antibacterials can help prevent that from happening. So it's not a matter of catching it from other people, but yourself, you're the most vulnerable person mm. in this story. Just for clarification purposes, would you call CNV reactivation an infection or to what point would you call a CNV reactivation an actual infection? Most of the time I like to monitor off-site and not because patients are often asymptomatic. This is something I like to say, I'll take the burden of monitoring your CMV and I will let you know when I think you need to be treated. At which case, then I tend to call it CMV, infection requiring treatment. Before that, it is asymptomatic and biomarker that we detect in the blood because some of those in some of those cases, it can just go away by itself. And that's your immune system recovering and fighting against viruses itself. And so I don't need to bother with starting mm. treatment or or really burdening you with um, worries about things that are probably going to get better. Absolutely. And also, you know, as we're reducing immunosuppression, the person's own immune system can help fight infection as well. And Correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is always, you know, happy days. Then. Happy days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but on, on the other hand, if, if you get graft versus host disease yes. and then the story changes again, whereby further immunosuppression or further treatments, then we start to think about other infections. Mm. So one of the big treatments for graft-versus-host disease is steroids. Is that right that they really impact the lymphocytes? That's correct, yeah. We want the steroids to act actually mm. at that point to dampen down the, the inflammation that causes graft-versus-host disease. But on the downside, uh, it also removes a protection against other infections. So with steroids comes a risk of other, what we call opportunistic infections. They occur because we've deliberately um, put you on more immunosuppression. What other kind of opportunistic infections are there? So the big one we haven't discussed is um, a fungal infection. Mm. So The um, real F word in transplant. <laughs> 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 yeah, so this F word is um, something we fear and the reason being they can be really hard to diagnose and the treatments are quite toxic and they require treatment for quite a long period. Are there other types of viral infections that people can get? Yes, yeah, certainly. So the other common things is something like EBV, which you may know as having caused infectious mono as a young adult. So EBV can the also... kissing disease. Yes. Did they get it from kissing? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. We can ask. <laughs> so that can also cause problems mm. later down the track. And again, similar to CMV, we monitor this closely as part of our routine care post-transplant. So this all sounds kind of scary, funguses, viruses, bacteria coming from within. Yeah. What can we do to prevent this? Yes, we've got some medications, some tablets that people can, well, not some, there's a lot, there's a high tablet burden. What other things can patients do to try and prevent infections? Well, it also comes down to good education and pre-transplant education through, and also through daily nursing mm. and um, through the physicians. 
by the time you come to a transplant, you would probably be quite used to having gone through neutropenic periods, being a bit more vulnerable mm. than the rest of the population. So one thing is what we've all learned in uh, COVID times is social distancing, yeah. washing your hands frequently, um, not eating uh, potentially raw foods or contaminated foods, which would put you at risk of certain infections. We also advise to stay away from sick kids um, when they're mm. when they're actively unwell, and this is all to protect you before you have a transplant and even after for yeah. a long time after a transplant. What about things like digging in the garden? Yes, um, that's a good question. So we often have keen gardeners who are coming up to a transplant, and we say that we shouldn't really be digging up in the garden and releasing potential fungal spores. So okay to go into a garden and enjoy it, but to leave well alone active digging into the soil with fertilisers and uh, you can leave that for, to a later time. Another frequently asked question is about food because, you know, down the track patient with good neutrophils and some lymphocyte recovery, I suppose, um, ask about, you know, when can I have a piece of rare steak or when can I have runny eggs? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So if by the stage you are in good recovery and that's the whole aim of a transplant and off immunosuppression and things are really going well, there is, you know, unrestricted diet. You would be able to safely have those foods as long as you were in at that sort of stable stage and weren't on immunosuppression. So a number of those things are uh, methods to reduce risk through, you know, direct um, targeting. What are some uh, lifestyle behaviours that patients could and carers can apply to um, perhaps uh, assist their immune system? Are there things like, you know, I don't know, physical activity, um, you know, particular things that people could be eating? Because uh, people do ask that, yeah, you know, are there foods I should be, you know, not those obvious things that we ask people to yeah. avoid, but are there things that I should be eating or should be avoiding mm. to help my immune system? Yep. That's a great question. And you're right, it's very, very common. So my general response to that is just keeping to a well-active um, lifestyle with a good balanced diet um, and keeping to all your different food groups. I do often get asked about vitamin supplements and Yakult and a few things like that. My response is that there's not a lot of great data that that actually enhances your immune system. So um, just normal dairies, normal food, a good balanced diet is what I would say. Great, thanks. What about vaccinations? Ooh, yes. Big advocate of vaccinations. So these uh, vaccinations are number one way of preventing infections. However, the caveat being that um, vaccinations may not work so well after you've had a transplant. And although you may have been vaccinated beforehand, that we would need to re-vaccinate you at the appropriate time after a transplant, usually from six months so onwards. It's like almost like a newborn baby. It is. It is. Well, you've received new cells and we then like. we have to start again. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. We love that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, are there any rules about vaccines that people have to follow? Um, I 
would follow the advice of your transplant physician and your transplant service because we have put input into those programs. So the main thing is there's two type of types of vaccines, like an inactivated type and a um, live vaccine. So we definitely avoid live vaccines during your immunosuppressive period and we tend to give inactivated vaccines to protect you. What are live vaccines? Live vaccines, great question, is when we use a small subunit of the actual pathogen to manufacture the vaccine. Mm. So these are things such as measles vaccines, yellow fever. So so these are contraindicated or prohibited whilst you're immunosuppressed. What about if um, my two-year-old daughter has a measles vaccine? Is there any risk between her and I as a transplant patient? Oh, good question. So no, there's no risk. And in fact, I would really advocate that all your family members are up to date in their vaccination schedule because that protects you. What about the COVID vaccine? Ah, the old COVID vaccine. (laughs) We can't get away from talking about infections and transplant and not talk about COVID. No, that's right. This has been the majority of what I've been dealing with with the last 18 months. Mm. So we're so fortunate to have available several options for COVID vaccine. So I would highly recommend um, that you get a vaccine and your loved ones and the the people in your household get vaccinated. We do know that the vaccine may not work as optimally if following a transplant and particularly if you need steroids or have graft-versus-host disease. So you still remain uh, vulnerable, but having had at least one vaccine um, puts you in better place Mm. than nothing. And so just to clarify, though, it is an inactivated vaccine. Correct. So it's safe for people to have post-transplant. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Yvonne. Very safe. Yeah. And although the effectiveness may not be as high in someone in the general population, any immunity is better than none. Would you would you say that? Yes, absolutely. Mm. That is the message. Um, we have these wonderful vaccines and they do work. And I would uh, 100% advocate that you have that at the right time. And there is more data coming out that potentially boosters might be required in the future. Um, so it's, it's a changing ever, landscape. It sure it? is. The whole last 18 months has been <laughs> ever changing. Whoever thought. Oh, I <laughs> know. <laughs> I was wondering if we could recap some of the signs and symptoms of an infection and maybe why temperature is so important? Yeah, that's great. So we often teach that to look out for fevers. Fevers are one of the most earliest signs of infections, particularly having had a transplant. So measuring your temperature every day, even twice daily, and anything um, over a certain amount to let your transplant physicians know. The earlier it is recognised and treated, um, the better the outcome, the shorter the infective period will be. What about rigors or shakes with no fever? Yes, so that is also a very early sign of an impending sort of infection. So if you do experience sort of shaking in the middle of the night, and but 
you may not have a temperature, you might mm. be cold and shivery, that's also a sign of infection and um, advice is to immediately contact your physician or your treating team. Well, one of the reasons that I was taught was that we need to get that first dose of antibiotics into you within ideally 30 minutes to prevent people going into shock. Yeah. Correct, mm. yeah. So that's probably the best way to do that is to go to the emergency department. Yes, and at any time of the day you would be given high priority, um, having had a transplant, knowing how vulnerable you are, that you would get um, assessed almost straight away and delivered some antibiotics. And correct, Alex, that's the message we've been trying to get out about early treatment, early recognition of uh, sepsis or blood poisoning and early treatment. Mm. And would you give different recommendations to patients who are neutropenic or, um, you know, not neutropenic? Yes, correct. So that's something uh, we work with um, with your institute. So there are different um, types of infections we are worried about when you're neutropenic versus not neutropenic. There is a big difference between someone who is um, 30 days post-transplant versus 180 days post-transplant and we have different recommendations um, in that case and that can vary um, and that can it can also be dependent on what type of infections you might have grown um, in the past and we mm. think a lot about that there is a growing sort of antibiotic resistant bugs out there and so we've got to figure out all these different aspects before making our recommendation. Sounds a bit intimidating. It is. So I like to say, let us think about that. Yeah. The the role of the patient is to recognise early those symptoms mm. and present early, let your treat, treating team know, get regular blood tests, regular follow-ups. And if you never see us or don't hear from us, that's a good thing. Yeah. We've done our job. Yeah. <laughs> This is probably a really good uh, time to uh, talk about the importance of the relationship between the patient, the transplant team and the infectious diseases team. Can you talk a little bit about that, Michelle? Yeah, I'd love to. So I just wanted to let everyone know that we work very closely and have done for many years. In the background, there are multiple meetings uh, about the best care and the best prevention and treatment for sometimes some unusual, common and unusual infections that occur in the transplant field. I also want to let people know that we work a lot with national guidelines and international guidelines to bring and to be up to date and find the best evidence to provide really optimal care. We really want to work together to have the best outcome. You're going through such a tough period, tough period, mm. and it's, it's so, such an overwhelming thing to have to deal with uh, that in the background is your infectious diseases specialist working in the background so that you don't have to worry, hopefully, about any <laughs> infections that may occur. Yeah, that's great. That's really reassuring. I um, love it. <laughs> I've Got another question that patients usually ask me down the track. Mm-hmm. They don't feel different taking or not taking prophylactic medications, and sometimes they opt to not to take them or they forget to take them because they don't feel any different. What What would you say to you know these group of people who yeah. are, are 
I, I suppose, still at risk of getting, you know, certain infections. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, the, for example, the risk of, of a fungal infection or a viral infection can remain a, a lot longer than what we think. And by that stage, many people, fingers crossed, are feeling well. So they question why they have to take it. So my advice is that to please continue taking them as prescribed because we've done a lot of work to try and figure out the high risk period versus the lower risk period. I'd say it's very great and lucky that you're not feeling any difference because that's we've got medications that are well tolerated and keep you well. So most of the time, every everyone's quite happy and grateful that they've reached a stage that they can just happily take their, their medications as directed and don't have to think about things. Mm. Prevention is way more effective than cure sometimes. Absolutely. People can fail the cure. Absolutely. So as a infection specialist, I work a lot with prevention mm. because we can have a really big impact. Uh, we'd rather prevent than treat uh, yeah. down the line. And uh, we've, as we all here are in the transplant field, we've seen it get better and better over the years when we used to not have an effective medication or the yeah. medications are so toxic they would affect you a lot. So we've come a long, long way and we prefer prevention mm. rather than treatment. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today, Michelle. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, guys. Thank you. It's been just lovely. Thank you. I've loved it. <laughs> Thanks for listening and hope you've enjoyed the show as much as we have. If you have any queries for the Straight and Married team or suggestions for future shows, please email us at straightandandmarrow at gmail.com. Although our team are experienced healthcare providers, we are unable to give individual medical advice. If you have a medical query, please speak to your treating team. See you next time at the Straight and Marrow and don't forget to subscribe to receive podcast updates.